Dotnet Rocks episode 729 with guest Jim Holmes. Recorded live Thursday, December 15th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. It's Carl and Richard, and we're here for .NET Rocks. What are you here for? I'm here for .NET Rocks. Are you here for .NET Rocks? I'm here for .NET. Anybody who's not here for .NET Rocks, speak now. Or put up your hand. Because yeah, putting up right. your hand on a radio show is funny. All right, well, we're all here. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, sir. We have we are we are having so much fun with a fan club. Um, the Dinah Rocks fan club, of course, is an excuse for us to give away stuff. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, it's time to announce the winner of this show's Telerik Ultimate Collection. Our very first winner of the year. The Telerik Ultimate Collection, of course, is everything Telerik does in yes. one package. Eight grand worth of software uh, normally costs $2,000, and we're giving one away every show. For the whole year. All you got to do is uh, join the fan club, and that's as simple as answering a few questions. And there's a link right on the homepage at .netrocks.com. You can't miss it. Yeah. So uh, today's winner is Chris Staley from Louisville, Kentucky. Congratulations, Chris. Gotta get, I gotta get an applause dot wave go. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we really want a stadium applause. We want a roar. All right, we'll do that. <laughs> we'll do it again. Ready? Okay. Chris Staley from Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> All right, next time we'll get some real sound effects. We need to find a sponsor so we can get some real sound effects. Can we get some, can we get some professionalism around here? This is so unprofessional. <laughs> well, anyway. Um, another thing, if you haven't heard that every year we're going to give away some big technology prize, at least $5,000 worth of technology, whether it's a computer or a surface or, or something like a, with a big honking audio system. I was actually thinking of putting together a system with a subwoofer and like the, the monitors that we use in the studio, the big speakers with a big knob, you know, with the big knob. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody likes the big knob. Yeah. So uh, you got to join the fan club. It's just free stuff constantly. Yep. So your chances are good right now, actually, that you sign up, you're going to win. Mm-hmm. All right. And with that, let's go right to Better Know Framework. All right. First Better Know Framework of the year, my friend. What do you got? All right. Here we go. System.device.location. Oh. This is in .NET Framework 4. Yes. And um, we've done this before, but it, it was so much fun and so interesting and so good to know that we brought it back. It's yummy. So this is where you can access the computer's location using a single API. Mm -hmm. Uh, The location info can come from multiple providers like GPS, Wi-Fi triangulation, or cell phone tower triangulation, Mm -hmm. but uh, system device location provides that single API to encapsulate all that stuff. And it even goes all the way down to stuff like just what locale you plugged in in your control panel. Oh, yeah. It, it, it'll always give you something. It'll give you something. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I love that idea that's just, you know, what have we got? Yep. So you have a civic address mm-hmm. and a geo coordinate and a geo position, which is the location data, um, and a geo position of T, right? So you oh, can, interesting. Yeah. So you can specify a type parameter and then uh, it will return the location data of that type. Nice. Yeah. 
So it's very cool. It's goodness. It's goodness. You're going to need it, especially if you're doing any, you know, tablet, mobile stuff. You're going to need that definitely. System.device.location. Richard, who's talking to us? Know it, learn it, love it. So I grabbed an email out of the stack to start off our year that will amuse you. Okay. Uh, hey, Carl and Richard. I ran into Richard in Frankfurt, Germany airport on November 6th. Which, wow. Yes, he did. He didn't actually run into me. I don't think there was any physical contact other than a handshake. <laughs> Good. Uh, uh, he was on his way to Ordev 2011, and I was on my way to the 2011 IPF World Powerlifting Championship in Pilsen, Czechoslovakia, Whoa. with a lifter I coach. Jeez. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. I was surprised to find when I turned around to talk to my lifter to see Richard walking directly behind her. I mentioned that I had attended the last road trip stop in Houston, Texas back in 2010. Yeah, that's right. I had a good little conversation with him in passing about the geek out shows you guys have been doing. The podcasts you guys did on space a few months back were very interesting. It's staggering to think that some of these high performance planes and spacecraft flew without using the computing power we have today. Think about this. The Hoover Dam was built without calculators yeah. or computers. No electronics at Pencils. all. It was all done by slide rule. In Papers. fact, most of the Apollo missions were, too. And the Apollo computer, 8K of memory, baby. <laughs> 8K. Uh, as I told Richard, I appreciate all the hard work you guys put into .NET Rocks and the other podcasts you produce. It really helps make the commute through Houston go by faster. Oh, yeah. We're really working hard. That's it. We're slaving <laughs> away, especially when we talk about space. <laughs> Uh, you know, I feel like we could do a space show every week these days. There's so much going on. Oh, it's I know. crazy. I know. I work at Logica North America on their real-time data management team, which has a couple of past .NET Rocks guests. Cool. Our lead dev is Jay Sawyer from show 147. Oh, yeah. And Michael Stewart from show 24 wow. is the architect developer on the team. Wow. Our team develops complex event processing solutions using Microsoft's Stream Insight. Thanks again, guys. And hey, thanks, Tony, for saying hi. You know, I, I, sometimes it surprises people. It does happen once in a while, and I'm happy to chat with anyone. You know, I fly a lot, and airports are boring places. <laughs> it's always good to meet someone who cares about stuff that I'm interested in, too. We had a great conversation. Although I think um, they, the lifter thought we were both nuts because we totally geeked out for the five or six minutes we had <laughs> walking together before you turned off to your gate and I went down to mine. Yeah. But the uh, least I can do is send you a mug. So, really? uh, wait, if you'd like a mug, write us an email or say hi to us in an airport. Uh, email at dot at franklins.net or write a comment on the website at dot rocks.com. Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes for a 10 week free trial of online developer training, hardcore stuff delivered by MVPs and industry experts. They have coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Pluralsight.com. Well, this should be an exciting show because our guest is our friend Jim Holmes. And Jim's bio is a list. Father, husband, geek, veteran, around 25 years IT experience co-author of Windows Developer Power Tools, Coffee Roaster, <laughs> MVP for C-Sharp, Chief Cat Herder of the Code Mash Conference, oh, yeah. Diabetic, Runner, liked fifth grade so much he did it twice. Nice. <laughs> 
one-time setter, middle blocker, and weak side hitter. Blogger, frazzledad.com. Evangelist for Telerik's Test Studio, an awesome set of tools to help teams deliver better software. And finally, big fan of naps. Hey, Jim. <laughs> hey, guys. So we're, we're starting off our year. Welcome to 2012, the first show of the year with a good yeah. friend. And really, this is a remake show. Yep. We, yeah, we actually did interview you once, but uh, somehow lost it. I blame Happens. Carl. It, yeah. Stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, not that I've got anywhere to go. I lost a recording with Scott Guthrie, so I sort of I own the biggest <laughs> mess up in recording history for us. Well, you know, when you do seven hundred shows, you're bound to lose a couple. You're gonna drop there. a couple. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it was Vegas. What do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't even blame that. No, it's just sheer stupidity. Yeah, that stuff happens. I I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> yeah, because I've never done that ever before. <laughs> Hey, before we dive into testing, uh, I really want to talk a little bit about Code Mesh because we're going. In fact, this the the conference will be on the week after the show is published. Yep. Uh, but this gotten out of hand, hasn't it? Um. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> um, you know. So six years ago, uh, when people asked me how the first Code Mesh went, I kind of had to stretch the truth. Not stretch the truth. I used marketing positive feedback to say that we had 250 people there really we were around 200 so it was an awesome sized code camp sized event Mm -hmm. um this year we're going to have over 1400 people and we sold out in 20 minutes wow whoa but what's even cooler is we broke eventbrite really wow traffic slamming eventbrite that that it overloaded their servers um and uh brian prince had to spend like three days um, working with PayPal records and database transactions and all kinds of, it was insane. It was just absolutely insane. Fabulous. That's awesome. And it sounds, did, I, I got to ask you this question. Did the Kalahari resort build an additional wing just to support you guys? <laughs> is it the code match wing? Is that what that is? Um, yeah, yeah, we sure like to think of it that way. Uh, yeah. It, that's insane as well. So the, uh, for folks who have been to Code Mash, um, the previous wing where we were at for the venue space was 20,000 square feet. That's, that's a big size. They added on another 100,000 square feet. Wow. Wow. Indeed. It, it, it's insane. So it, I used to be in the Air Force and the, uh, the new dining hall is the size of a hangar that we used to fit, um, E3 aircraft, like a seven, 27 uh, aircraft in. E3 just, was a 707, oh, buddy. Oh, 707. Yeah, what am I saying? Well, it's Richard, been a while. how do you know that? <laughs> you know I'm right. Yeah, how no, you, you know are. 727 is much smaller. But yeah. yes, you know, it, it's it's insane. I was there with Jason Fallis uh, earlier this week, and it, it's just, it's staggering. Well, I know the real reason why Code Mash is so popular. Because Richard and I got drunk on a show there once. Uh, more than once. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> Somebody started passing out bottles of Maker's Mark, and then everything got all crazy. <laughs> well, and... and well, anyway. Uh, yeah. And it's, we we it's always a, have fun when we go there. It's a sold-out show, so what can it we is. say? Yeah. All right, let's talk testing. Yeah. I it's, love to now, talk testing. Now, one of the things that we discovered in talking to you the first time was that 
you didn't become an evangelist and then fall in love with the product. You fell in love with the product, liked it so much that you called up Telerik and said, I should be an evangelist for this product because I love it so much. Is that right? Yeah, really. That's uh, um, Yeah, that, that, that's exactly kind of how it ran. Um, I've been working with automated testing um, at the unit and integration level for a long time and then have been for probably about the last four or five years uh, doing more and more functional testing. So using tools like um, you know, Visual Studio Web Test, Selenium, Watton, and you can get a lot done with those uh, with those tools. There are people doing tremendous things, but I'd also run into a number of the really sharp edges around that stuff, and um, was wondering about you know new opportunities and things, and then had some conversations with Phil Japixi, who uh, had been working for Telerik, and found out about. Telerik Test Studio and started looking at it and was just really knocked over by the problems it solved that had been kicking my butt for a long time. And so, yeah, you know, I I basically said, Phil, would you mind passing my resume on to these guys? Because I'd love to chat with them. And, you know, here I am now. That's cool. That's great. It's usually not the way it happens. Well, I mean, it's it's great that it does happen that way. So Um, tell us uh, tell us about this product and in particular what it was about it that um that solved your problems let's i guess we we should talk about the pain first huh yeah so um with any so functional testing at, at the ui level regardless of whether you're doing something on the desktop or on the web is just much more to my view it's much more complex much more brittle than unit or integration tests um, there's a lot more moving parts. UI is just, UI can be really tough, particularly yes, if you're working in a legacy app where, you know, you've got an older web app that's been around for a number of years and the UI is, you know, the, the structure behind it doesn't look real great. You know, you've right. got tables within tables within tables, blah, blah, blah. You know, the web app was doing great things. It's, you know, making customers happy, but you try to test that. And then, holy smokes, I've got to deal with this convoluted DOM structure. Mm. Um, if you're dealing with, I mean, more and more and more now, we're throwing lots of JavaScript at our web apps. And that's awesome because we get great things done. But that brings into testing now um, additional complexity around how are you dealing with the events um, that JavaScript is, has on the page. Right. You've got dynamic content where I need to test uh, write automation that's going to deal with elements that aren't on the page yet or content that isn't on the page yet. And now you get all these little subtle timing issues that if you aren't very cognizant of exactly what's going on with that page, it's going to kick your butt. Um, and then there's just overall maintenance of if you are, uh, just like in software, we, we believe firmly, hopefully, in the don't repeat yourself principle, right? Dry. Right. Sure. So, you know, that saves our butts on the software side of things. On testing, it's the same thing. So all of those DOM structure things for interacting with elements on a page, if you scatter the definition for those things, how to find those elements, if you scatter those across multiple tests, when your UI changes, that's not an if, right? That's a when. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When your UI changes, 
you're hosed because you're going to have to go through all of these tests and fix all of that stuff. So when I started looking at Test Studio, um, it solved a whole lot of the things that had been giving me exactly that kind of grief, a much cleaner interaction with uh, the page when you're trying to do things like um, deal with JavaScript that's on there. Uh, We automatically kind of centralize in what we call our element repository, all of those locators for the things on the page that you need to interact with so that as you're recording and writing other tests, you just automatically refer to that kind of central repository for finding all the things. Sort of like creating variables at one level instead of having to nest and find them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep, very similar to that. Um, And so you can do all of this stuff through Selenium and Watton and, um, and, you know, the stuff inside Visual Studio. But the thing is, you need to spend a whole lot more time in code, say, writing, um, following what's called page object pattern, or it, it's just more and more effort. Um, and I saw all this stuff handled in Test Studio and was just really knocked away, uh, blown away by it. So um, those are some of the specific things. Maintainability um, around tests is just critical. You Two weeks into a testing project and you're all happy because you got all these neat um, scripts that are playing back and driving the browser around. And, man, that looks cool. Look at this go. Hmm. And then, you know, two months down the road, if you haven't taken some care with what you're doing around your functional test automation, regardless of whether it's our tool or somebody else's, you really start running into those problems that I'm talking about. You've got stuff scattered around. Your tests are getting longer and longer. It gets harder. Um and then, you know, six months down the road, you're like, God, can I just go back to manual tests, please? Mm-hmm. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to teams where a year in, they've abandoned their testing framework entirely and built a new one. Yes. Yeah. Um... And and this happens time and time again. You know, I I, I've, I talk with people in the Ruby domain; they've run into this. I talk with people in .NET. You know, um, they run into this stuff all the time. Java. These are not technology problems. These are domain problems around testing, and particularly around functional testing. You know, Roy Osherov in his his awesome book, uh, The Art of Unit Testing, his opening uh, his opening forward in there 
is a very frank discussion of a project that he was on or running that the entire project tanked because they really got their tests out of hand. And, Mm. you know, six, eight months down the road, they were spending the vast majority of their time fixing all of their tests and not delivering stuff. Right. So tell me about the the features that allow for dynamic data to write tests against stuff that in dynamic content that isn't there yet. How does that work? Um, so, uh, first off, let me plug, um, a series that I have going on my blog at frazzledad.com right now. Um, and it's around, it's 31 days of testing. And I've got a couple articles on there that speak precisely to this. So when you are, um, trying to write a test around dynamic content, you have to have some kind of a weight. You know, your script is running very fast and it will just blow through a page unless you tell it, hey, wait a minute, I need you to wait here until this next element shows up right? or until that element is loaded with content. Because under Ajax, really, that's kind of like the two... That's the way it works. Yeah, you know, you, you either don't have an element and that element has to get loaded or you have the element, but the element has no content, right? Right, right. So um, there's the idea of implicit weights and explicit weights. And this works the same in our tool or in Selenium. Uh, so an implicit weight you can kind of handle for where the element isn't there yet. And you just tell the framework, hey, I need you to, here's a kind of a global default if you can't find what you're looking for, hang out here and wait for 10 seconds and every 500 milliseconds, pull the DOM again to see if that element's shown up. Mm. So that's a coded step in Selenium. In our tool, as you're recording the test, um, it's just handled behind the scenes for you. So you don't have to consciously deal with that. You still need right. to understand what's going on, but um, we simpl- we take that step of simplifying it for you. Okay. If you're dealing with the elements there, but the content isn't, then you have to do some explicit work. Um, and in Selenium, you need to write uh, some additional code making use of some of their infrastructure and support classes where you say there's an explicit weight situation on this element, hang out until you see this content get loaded up, and then continue. Okay. And then in our in our uh, tool set, we've got a very similar notion, whereas you um, you just add in a wait step that's basically one action in the UI, and you say, hang out here until you see this content appear, and then move on. All right. Fair enough. So uh, what are th- – these are the main things, right? Dealing with asynchronous dynamic content dealing with scripts that, and content that changes. Um, what is another killer feature that, that convinced you that this was the tool for you? Um, there's, so there's a lot of discussion between teams. How do we handle collaboration? You know, how do we, um, you know, do we have a separate QA group? Do we try to bring folks together? I've never been a fan of the pitch it over the fence to QA mindset. Um, right. You know, it, it, as a team, 
So first off, you know, regardless of whatever teams I've had, whether it was in sports or whatever, in the military or, you know, in IT jobs, you just don't segment things out within your team and get the best product out the door. Yeah. Um, so the, I'm a big fan of having tools where people with certain sets of skills can still get really productive at what they're doing, but still foster good communication there. Yeah. So if you look at the hardcore agilists, they're using things like, um, fitness and, uh, you know, some of the various, um, like cucumber type, the spec type things where you've got an easy grammar over the top of the tools that are actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. So those are like the alpha dog teams and they're getting great things done because they absolutely have their tester folks sitting next to their devs. So I look to tools that will support that basically complete coded approach to however you're doing your work. And if you're using fitness, will the tool fit that? And we can do that. But there are also a huge number of teams where there's maybe not that tight integration or there's still great collaboration, but a tester sits off to one side and gets a bit of work done and a dev gets their work done. And, you know, maybe they've got just a little bit less a little bit looser collaboration. So how do you support that? Mm. We've got an awesome UI that helps that tester stay very productive. So it's not as intimidating to them as Visual Studio. They can write great tests. They can um, do very detailed tests and they can write very maintainable tests. When I'm on customer sites, I say, um, the first thing you need to think about is, is this a good test, right? It needs to be granular. You need to make sure that you're testing the right thing because, you know, you can get a false sense of confidence through a badly written test. You know, you're, you're not testing the right thing. So obviously right. you've got to take great care with that test. Make sure it's sure. the right thing. That's priority number one. But priority number one and a half is how's this test going to run in six months? Can you make it maintainable? How do you keep things modular? Um, and regardless of, you know, whether you're using a code first framework, you know, Selenium or whatever, or our tool, you have to think hard about keeping those things maintainable. And I'm a firm believer that our tool can help keep those tests very maintainable as you're moving forward. So the, the QA folks, if, you know, there's not that tight collaboration, they can still get things done really well. When they need help with doing something like um, trying to set up calls to a backing API, say for prerequisite data, um, you want to set up a backing API that might hit some web services and create uh, users for you. You know, my test isn't, do I need to create this user? My test is, can a user create data in the system? So I don't want to use the UI to create that guy. So now... I can ask a developer to maybe write an API that'll let me do that so I don't have to do that and get all that tied in. So that works really well if the dev and the tester are sitting together. It also works well if you've got a tool where they are collaborating through source control, right? So, you know, I've got my tests. I start to write them. I check it in. In my UI, um, the dev on the other side of the room or in a different building or the other side of the world pulls 
gets latest, helps me out with the API, checks things back in, and I can keep going. You know, I was looking at, at Cucumber, which it, it seems, it's a Ruby-oriented tool, but it is very kind of a cool idea, but it reminded me a lot of MSpec. I don't know if you've looked at, at, at MSpec as well. Just this idea of very early specifications as part of the testing process. Yeah. So, um, you know, TDD and BDD, everybody's very familiar with, um, or hopefully getting more familiar with. They, at they, least they certainly the, know the acronym. Right. So test-driven development and behavior-driven development. So things like Cucumber and MSpec help with kind of that behavioral type of, of, you know, design and development where can we get an easy grammar that's readable and understandable, not just by the developers, but the, by the people that we are building the systems for. Right. The, uh, capturing the domain owner's intent. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, you can, it, you know, the XP folks and um, Agile people are big fans of saying the tests are your documentation. Um, tests are documentation for the developers, but there's no way that you can hand that off to most business owners or stakeholders and expect them to really understand or validate, yeah, this is doing what we expect. But if you're using a tool like Cucumber or MSpec or any number of other tools that are similar to that, then you've got some much more understandable phrasing around um, given a regular user has items in their shopping cart, when that user checks out, then they should receive a confirmation email. Right. Right. Yep. But, you know, that set of specs is a long way away from does this UI do what I expect it to do? It is. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right because that is showing a, you know, that's showing like a slice, right? Yeah. So that's the acceptance. And, you know, you, you maybe change the grammar around, but then, yes, so absolutely. If you're doing something like Cucumber, you've got that grammar text file, but then you have to write the fixture behind it that actually drives the UI around and does all of the asserts and then mm -hmm. ties things back. Mm -hmm. So there is a level of hidden goo there um, that is, you know, one or two steps away. And you have to be very aware and open about that um, because that brings its own complexity. And, you know, it's it's a couple steps away. So guess what? We write bugs in our software. That's another area for us to really screw things up by putting bugs into the test. Whoops. Yeah. Well, and we get back to this cycle of I end up with more testing code than production code, and it, and it's causing me more time and pain than it gradually becomes appear to be worth. Right, right. What do you think a fair ratio is test code to to uh, to production code? So I am totally going to use the it depends cop out. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, we should just have a little horn that plays. Oh, yeah. you know? Sad trombones. <laughs> <and such. laughs> sad trombones. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, it, I, I, honest to God, it does. Yeah. Um, it is to, to my view, it is totally dependent on, I guess, three factors. One is the size of your project, right? So if I've mm -hmm. got a fairly small website right, that, you know, doesn't have a whole lot going on, I'm going to have a very small set of tests for that. If I've got a, so that's one factor, right? So that compared to, 
you know, an online system where you do have a shopping cart um, and all of these other things. So now all of a sudden I, I need a whole lot more testing around that just because it's bigger and more mm-hmm. complex. The second factor would be, you know, things like um, risk. So if you're talking HIPAA data or SOX compliance or other regulatory stuff, mm-hmm. man, you know, you, you've you got legal risk there, sure. so you're going to need much more testing. And not, not that you could eliminate that risk, having jumped down this particular hellhole a number of times, <laughs> but that you're really creating a document trail that shows reasonable effort to assure security. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can't, what is it? You can't disprove negatives, right? right? But you can show we've got these things that we understand were important, and here's what we've done. Plus, we've done exploratory testing around this following kind of these patterns, um, because I think that's also extraordinarily important to have involved in the mix as well. Automation is 100%. But, yeah, you know, you're right. This is So it's giving you some exposure and awareness of what your risk is. And then I'd say the third factor that contributes to how much test, how, you know, where do you stop with test is how good your team, mm-hmm. you know, um, there've been teams where I've been very comfortable with, um, minimal testing because they collaborate, they talk, um, they write great code and we can be very focused about where we spend our automation time. Mm-hmm. And there have been other teams where it's like, man, you know, um, cut your projected velocity in half because we're going to have to be writing a whole lot more tests and, you know, take it from there. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Jim, do you think that uh, the test-first philosophy also applies to functional testing as much as it does to unit testing? I do. Um, I, I really do. So uh, there's a whole other... Um, offshoot of the star DD, which is acceptance test driven development. And this would really be where you how, start to use. How things many like- kinds of tests can we, can we, can we drive <laughs> development with? I mean, what do you write your unit test and your functional test and your, you know, and then you start writing your code. Um, so I, I think that uh, the acceptance test is this really uh, ATDD and, you know, So alphabet soup, other variants of this, the idea is that you write a spec or you can think of it. So I didn't invent this term, but there's a great phrase called outside in development. So you write that outside layer of here's the acceptance criteria that we need for this user story or, you know, for this one work item, right? Because you want to stay granular. So here's what this needs to do when we're done. This thing needs to pass. And you get that outside and then you go back and you start from the inside and work back out. So then you go down and you start doing, you know, more of the, what we understand in the .NET world is the TDD approach, right? So unit tests and some integration tests and you build out the functionality until that spec passes. 
And then you've got awesome coverage. You've got that functional test that validates, yay and verily, the system does for this slice what we expected it. And mm-hmm. you've got the units, unit tests, and maybe some integration tests in there that, you know, all of the internals are working as we need it to. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of moving parts in there. There's, um, some people will freak out when you start talking about that much testing. But if you look to a number of folks that are writing about this stuff, it keeps the systems extraordinarily lean. You're very focused on delivering great value because you're doing things in small chunks and you're being very precise about what it is you're building and how the system is supposed to react. So, and I, sorry, go ahead. So it just seems weird to me that you would write a, f- a functional test to, to test UI, for example, before the UI is even written. Yeah. So, you know, you can't, um, depending on how your team is set up, because, you know, all of this is very context specific, you know, yeah. how's your team work, but at least to get that thing of, Look, here's your work item that, that we're working on today and maybe tomorrow. Here are the acceptance criteria. And even if it's just scratched on a three by five card, at least you've got a clear notion of this is what this feature or this item needs to specifically do. Okay. You know, and, and you can start writing that at the UI level, but you're going to stub things out, right? Because you don't have necessarily all of your element locators to interact with. So but it if you're having like, a good, hmm? sounds like you're saying that you do them in parallel. Yeah, I, you know, because it's um, you get as much done as you can. Yeah. While you're having constant conversations between the testers, the PM, you know, stakeholder, whatever, and and the dev, and you know, hopefully they're in the same room having these kinds of conversations. Um, if not, then you're spending a lot of time on Skype or whatever. But uh, mm. you know, that's where you get the best actions going on is with that level of communication still gets into the real challenge of i'm a big believer in setting good goal posts for a project like when will this app be done recognizing that code's never done right just yeah (laughs) at some point you stop right yeah okay probably all no projects are ever finished only canceled yeah uh Whether, uh, yeah, whether the code's still running or not is another question entirely. But this idea that we could actually build automated tests, that you could set the goalposts so clearly in the ground that the moment the, the thing goes past, you know, alarms can go off. It's done. It, you know, that's really huge. Keeping, so to me, the, there's a couple things that are critical around making that happen. And the first is being very granular with your work item size mm-hmm. so that, you know, we stay working small little chunks that we can roll out very quickly to the customer. Um, and then, you know, the notion of those good specs. And then also everything on the backlog is, you know, the customer needs to be able to own that, reprioritize it, and they get to s- decide when we're done. Yes, we roll out one little small chunk and they say, man, you know what? I've hit that 80%. I don't need to go the other 20%, which is going to cost me, you know, a huge amount more money. Right. We've got clear goalposts, like you said. It's a great metaphor. We've got the tests documented that show, or the tests running that show this works as expected. Let's go find another project to work on. Well, 
Yeah, and, and, he, and he hit the interesting point that he, I was not just being facetious. I said, you know, we only ever it'll only ever get canceled. It's just like typically we keep adding features until the customer satisfaction hits a point where that's enough. Yeah, the cost is no longer justifying whether you could do that. My my concern with that, especially in internal development, it's it's, it's like this. There's never a celebration of success. Yeah, there's always a demand to stop. Yeah. 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 Don't we have something else to work on now? Because this is, you know, the, that last rev, it last set of changes just didn't seem all that important. Nobody seems to care. Move on. As opposed to actually setting stakes to the ground so that you can have a party. It's kind of like updates to your Facebook iPhone app. <laughs> <laughs> no, just Not that you're bitter or anything. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, you know, the latest one I upgraded to, and it has the added feature of when you press any button, it just hangs. For five minutes. Oh, man. So oh, that hurts. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad I upgraded that. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I wish I could roll it back, you know? I want my oh. money back. Give me that last version. Oh, man. Yeah, that hurts. Uh, what? Where do you put stuff like load testing into the equation, uh, Jim? So, you know, again, those small sites generally are not going to need that. Yeah. Um. I'd make a load and performance and stress testing. Those terms, <laughs> I'm telling you this, um, those terms really get mixed and muddled around a lot. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, almost every app should have some kind of a performance test. And that's simply just, I have one test that runs a vertical slice through a couple important parts of the system Yep. And I just understand how long it takes me to run that one thing. One user, right. one action, I know how long it takes. I've got a regression tripwire. Because um, then I can understand if I really screwed something up. Yep. And that should, you should get that in place at the start. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not tough to do. It, um, there are any number of tools. Uh, we rolled out performance testing in, uh, in our last release. Um, and it's really easy to use. If you're on other platforms, there are all kinds of tools that will let you do that uh, at a pretty cost-effective fashion. Um, get that kind of stuff in early because it's not hard, and it gets you great information. But when you step up to, like, load testing where I need to throw 3,000 users at my website and make sure that my shopping cart still works so that I know I can earn money and get revenue in. Revenue matters. Um, that's a horse of a different color, and you need to do a lot of planning ahead of time to figure out, is this going to be cost-effective? Do I actually need to get that wrapped into our process? And if you do, you need to get all of that stuff invested very early on right. because it's not something that is easy to do after the horses run out of the barn to make a bad metaphor there. Well, and, and throwing my IT hat on there, often I have a service level agreement that talks about what the page performance and so forth has got to be. And I can start, I, I wish there was a great tool that took, went from SLA document to set up tests. <laughs> but near as I could tell, it's a couple of guys who. It's called who, a programmer. Yeah. They, <laughs> and, and generally, you know, those guys, the guys that are good at that sort of stuff, not fun guys to hang around with either. Like they're, they're really serious. They count the numbers really tightly and they, you know, they're, they're, how long does it take to fill in this form given the human has perfect entry and no hesitation and, <sighs> and, and, you know, though, and then how long did it take to get stored and, and yeah, 
That's the, the, the interesting thing is that there are persons out there that are well built to do that. These mm-hmm. SLA prosecutors, but, <laughs> but he, they, because that's their job, right? It's to pro, right. you know, uh, I've had versions, we certainly versions delayed, you know, an app that's got three or four versions out. There's great resistance to shipping a new version for the operation side. Yeah. It's like, we're currently meeting our SLA. And you're yeah. going to jeopardize that by pushing a new version. Prove to me you can make these benchmarks. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> um, that goes back to revenue coming in the door, right? You know, operations is comfy. The system's stable. They mm-hmm. know what its performance is. Earning money is okay. It yep. really is. And, you know, we talked about risk earlier. Can you show me a clear understanding what the risk of this new rollout is? And if you haven't done your load testing work and, and, you know, gotten all that documented, um, you don't have much of a foot to stand on. Well, and on the performance side, we've been working, I'm, I'm talking about strange loop here, the form, uh, in terms of performance testing, we actually have a set of benchmarks for every single feature and how they currently perform the previous version and built into the testing sequence is testing all the times on all those things. And if the times get faster, which does happen if people have worked on that sort of stuff. You know, there's a party, it gets flagged. And when it gets slower, it also gets flagged. And at times you can, but it really needs is that we have to consciously decide. We know this is slower because we've added these things. We don't think we can make it any faster than that. We'll accept that. Not just this default acceptance of that stuff's now slower. Right down at the individual feature level. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, so much of of testing at the broad level... uh, it, you know, I, I wear a dev hat, I wear a PM hat, I wear a tester hat. Mm-hmm. As a tester, I can't guarantee you quality. I can't. Right. What I can do is help you understand the risk of deploying this software. And, and that is absolutely what my responsibility is to right. business. You know, I'm not here to be the QA Nazi that says, no, we're not releasing this. That's right. Somebody else makes that decision. You just give the numbers. Absolutely. You need to give them kind of your due diligence and look, here's what we as a team have done for you. Here's how we feel about it. Here's some good exposure, you know, metrics around performance, you know, past testing history, blah, blah, blah. It's about letting the business know what the risk is to move forward. So uh, should we give away one of these uh, Telerik testing tools suite? Sweets? Uh, that would be awesome. Absolutely sure can. All right. So what we'll do is we'll pick a, a name from our fan club and we'll announce it on the next show. Oh, that'd be very cool. Yeah. So um, be happy to give away a uh, license for Test Studio. So that comes both with uh, the standalone version and then also um, everything. Most of what I've talked about, uh, you can definitely do straight with inside Visual Studio as well. Okay. And just tell us briefly what the options are for purchasing. Um, so Teller Test Studio uh, comes in its own. So we have a couple different options through Telerik. If you own the Telerik Ultimate Collection, so that's like all of the you know 10 billion awesome control suites and all of the Just series for pro- uh, productivity. Mm-hmm. If you own that Ultimate Collection, you already own a license for Test Studio Express, which is our Visual Studio plugin. Yep. So you get the great framework. You can record um, tests, plan back, do a lot of great stuff through there. All of that maintainability stuff that I'm so passionate about works right in there. 
if you buy Test Studio itself, which is uh, $24.99, that's $2,499, mm-hmm. um, you get standalone UI, which brings in performance testing, manual testing, a number of other things, um, and you also get that Visual Studio feature. Now, isn't the Ultimate Collection only $2,000? Uh, you know what? I don't know what the price on that is. Yep. Yeah, I think it's one nine nine nine. Yeah. So it's less than the ultimate collection is less than the test suite by itself. Correct. Hmm. So that's very cool. Um. Well, all right. So what we'll do is, like I said before, we'll pick a another winner for today's show, and we'll announce the winner of that uh, test suite in the next show. From the fan club, which, by the way, you have to be a fan to win stuff on .NET Rocks. Go to .netrocks.com slash fanpage.aspx and sign up. Well, Jim, this has been very cool. I enjoyed chatting with you guys again. It's great that you're so passionate about what you're evangelizing. That's just what it's all about. Uh, yeah, you know, I've uh, I've wandered around, done a whole bunch of different things, um, and... Uh, testing some things I've been passionate about for a long time. I love the tool set that I'm working with, but even if you don't use our stuff, there are many important things that I feel the need to talk with people about because we're getting so many things wrong right. that we shouldn't be. And, you know, it's through some ignorance and people not understanding things or, you know, not keeping up or just not having had a guiding light to show the way. I'm not some prophet holding a guiding light out there, but, you know, I love being able to spread the word and say, man, I screwed this up many times. Learn from my pain. Here's a better way to do this. If you want to use our tool, great. I love that. But be successful in what you do. Right. Listen to me. Listen to some of these other folks because... Man, we can help you out. Um, and there's just so many smart people in the automation industry that, uh, God, my head just explodes um, learning all this cool stuff. Yes, I'm obviously a little excited and passionate about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. And, well, Jim, thanks again. Thank you, guys. It's been wonderful talking to you. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember... Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a